0: Internet privacy is becoming more and more important these days, and using a VPN in general is the best way to ensure you've got it. An ExpressVPN has everything you'd ever want and need in a VPN, and more. I've tried other VPNs, but once I started using Express months ago, I've never looked back. ExpressVPN works on nearly every computer, tablet, and mobile device, and contains a huge network of servers, over 3,000 spanning 94 countries, with great speeds. You can use it to unblock popular online services like Netflix and Facebook, and they value your privacy more than anything. There are no activity or connection logs, and they use PWC audited servers to confirm compliance with their privacy policy. They are just fantastic, and I could not be more happy to be partnered with them. So if you are interested in trying it out, you can go to expressvpn.com slash clancypasta, or click the link in the description, for 3 months free when you order a 12 month subscription. Using my link, you get an awesome deal, and it helps me out a ton as well. Alright, so without further ado, here's the episode. Hello, hello everybody. I hope you're having a good night, and welcome to another episode of Clancy Pasta. Now, tonight's episode features two stories by the fantastic author, The Vespers Bell. And uh, if you enjoy what you hear and would like to check out more of the author's work, links to his subreddit and more will be in the description, including a link to his new short story anthology ebook on Amazon. Now, without further ado, I hope you enjoy the first story of the night, Red in Tooth and Claw. When Seneca Chamberlain had first been taken down the little-known road of Adder's Lane, it had been in a horse-drawn carriage. Now he rode down its Byzantine twists and turns in an electric, semi-autonomous luxury sedan, but Adder's Lane itself had not changed one bit. The road was long and winding, undulating and meandering like a serpent, as its name implied. It was made from dreary gray stones that had been laid down millennia ago by some forgotten druids, for reasons now remembered only by a few. It revealed itself only to those who sought it, and while no one ever saw it move, all knew that it did. Those who lacked the power and will to command it would be led around in an infinite, ever-shifting loop until either thirst or madness claimed them, unless they first stared to venture off the path Altogether. That was practically suicide, though, since Adder's Lane was flanked by ancient, gnarled, moss-draped trees on all sides, with a nearly opaque canopy overhead. It was an ancient, primeval forest that had once been fully of the earth, but now no longer quite belonged in a world where even the abyssal depths of the ocean or some taint of human civilization. The Adderwood, however remained untouched by both man and time, in some sense literally, so much so that it was not to be found on any mundane map. Seneca barely suppressed a shudder at the sound of a lone wolf howling somewhere in the distance. At least it wasn't on the lane this time. Even without horses to worry about, an encounter with the Adderwood Wolves was never a pleasant experience. Due to the protean nature of Adders Lane, one never knew exactly how long their trip would take. Speed was limited by the frequent turns and rough terrain, but that didn't really matter so much as how well the road submitted to the traveler's will. Seneca, however, studied a that than he was, managed to complete the drive in under half an hour. Adder's Lane graciously led him out of the woods and into the hollowed glade those old druids had sought so long ago. They had built a megalith there, or so Seneca had been told, but now in its place was a great stone manor house, practically a castle. There was no parking lot, per se, but Seneca brought his car up as close to the front doors as he could get it. The doors opened slowly revealing a pair of occultists in hooded, crimson cloaks bound at their necks by a triple Yoroboros brooch. Sighing, Seneca stepped out of his car and went to fetch his passenger from the trunk. It wasn't as malevolent as it sounded. The passenger in question was no more than an undead brain in a vat, needing little in the way of space and air. That didn't stop him from wrinkling his gray matter at Seneca the instant the trunk was popped. "'Don't give me that. We can't exactly have you riding shotgun, now can we?' Seneca asked rhetorically. Picking up the brain with both hands and closing the trunk with the tap of his foot, he headed up the steps to Aderman Manor. "'He's waiting,' one of the occultists spoke softly, before shutting the door behind him. The foyer was a candle-lit rotunda, with the marble floor tiles forming a mosaic of the triple Euriboros icon." Frescoes and statues decorated the room, depicting various mythic and mystical beings and events, and the domed ceiling was painted with a scene of the Chaos Kampf, the battle between the Sky Father and the World Serpent. Seneca passed through the foyer with barely a glance and into the great hall. It had vaulted ceilings, two long refractory tables, and four hundred ornate eye-backed chairs of wood and velvet. A long red carpet was laid between them, leading to an elevated throne with a gold veneer. Upon that throne sat another crimson-cloaked figure, his hood completely obscuring his face. He was at least seven feet tall, yet no more than 200 pounds in weight. His ashen hands were thin and elongated, his fingers blackened at their pointed tips. Everything about him seemed elongated and serpentine, actually from his spindly limbs to his lanky torso to his gangling neck, as though he had once been a man of average stature who had been stretched out to his current proportions. Upon his head, he bore a golden crown made of 13 interlocked triple Euriboros icons, the front-facing one holding a blood-red Philosopher's Stone in its center. To each side of the throne were six slightly less ornate chairs, filled with other cloaked figures of more conventional stature who bore only a single triple Euroboros upon their crowns. Scribes sat at a pair of desks to record the proceedings. Numerous lesser occultists stood at the ready, should their superiors require anything, and a balcony to either side of the hall held multiple spectators. Seneca approached the throned figure until the exact instant he held up his hand for him to stop. "'Set Crowley next to the Victrola,' he ordered, his voice raspy but commanding. "'Yes, Grand Adderman,' Seneca bowed reverently, doing as he was told. "'Seneca, you know why you've been called here,' the Grand Adderman began. "'On Samhain, you dared to summon the entity our order has named Emrys. "'Your containment wards proved inadequate.' And Emrys now roams free in our world. What do you have to say for yourself? Summoning Emrys was risky. I don't deny that, he answered, swallowing nervously. Opportunities to do so typically occur only once every 18 or 19 years, so I prefer not to waste them. I was, admittedly, trying to impress a prospective member with a demonstration of our order's capabilities, which may have factored into my risk assessment more than it should have. I would, however, like to point out that I have successfully summoned Emerus before without incident. Then what went wrong this time? The Grand Aderman growled. Ah, Crowley can answer that better than I can, Seneca replied, deferring to the disembodied brain. Crowley's aura began to glow as he began telekinetically manipulating the Victrola. "'I refined the miasma that was used in the ritual and double-checked the wards and incantations,' he explained, his voice booming forth from the antique record player. "'They were, if anything, more potent and secure than those used during prior attempts.' Despite that, I was actually less certain they would hold this time around due to various uncertainties regarding Emris himself. I had no way of knowing if he had grown stronger or if his chains may have weakened, but I did deem these distinct possibilities and advised against the summoning. Seneca chose to proceed anyway. I would like to point out, however, that I did have the darling twins on hand in case physically subduing Emrys became necessary. Seneca interjected. And their battle sent such shockwaves through the aether that there's not one clairvoyant on the planet who does not know that Emrys is free. The Grand Atterman shouted, pounding his right fist. And they still failed to restrain him. What went wrong? Well, I had retreated to a secure location at that point. But from what I've been able to gather, James became injured, and Mary then insisted upon a strategic withdrawal. You know how attached she is to her brother, Seneca chuckled awkwardly. And what, if anything, do you intend to do about this? The Grand Aderman demanded. I intend to defer to your superior judgment and expertise on the matter, Seneca admitted. Everyone else in the room began murmuring amongst each other, while the Grand Adderman just buried his unseen face in his palm. "'Very well,' he muttered. "'Dealing with Emrys will require drafting a committee to determine and recruit the necessary resources. This meeting, however, is to determine how to discipline Head Adderman Chamberlain. Do you wish to appeal for leniency, Seneca?' "'No,' Grand Adderman, Seneca said, taking off his hat and lowering his head contritely. I knew the risks and summoned Emrys regardless. Both my containment wards and the darlings proved inadequate control measures, and I am solely responsible for that. I throw myself at your mercy. So be it, the Grand Adderman declared. First and foremost, you are demoted to the rank of Master Adarman, effective immediately. Crowley shall be the acting head of the Heroic Chapter, until a long-term replacement can be found. You've been with our Order for centuries now, Seneca, and in all that time you have seldom been anything but an asset. But your failure with Emrys is a complete and utter catastrophe. We cannot risk having you in a position where you'll be able to repeat such a costly error. Furthermore, while your usefulness to us may spare you your life and your membership, a mere demotion would be insufficient justice, considering the threat we now face and the Herculean effort we will no doubt endure to contain it. I also fear that letting you off too easy may embolden other head addermen to take similar unjustified risks in the future. Therefore, I'm open to suggestions as to how best to discipline Master Adderman Chamberlain. There was chuckling from the audience and nods of agreement from the council members. Why not pump him full of Crowley's concoctions and force him to endure the rest of eternity as a brain in a vat as well? One council member suggested. Hey, I take offense to that, Crowley objected. Perfectly understandable. The Grand Atterman nodded condescendingly. Besides, I would prefer for Seneca to remain more or less intact after we're done with him. In that case, perhaps old Redruck might be the best suited to the task, eh? Another council member suggested. Nods and murmurs of assent came from the rest of the council and audience alike. Even the Grand Adderman seemed taken with the idea. I shall see if he's available, he nodded. He grabbed a tall golden staff made from three intertwined snakes, the head of each pointed outwards in a different direction, and a luminescent bloodstone held between them. As he bowed his head and began chanting in a forgotten tongue, the entire manor house and everything in it seemed to dissipate like fog, leaving Seneca standing there in the glade. All around him now was the megalith of old, of yore, of that ancient, before-time when even the wise cannot distinguish between myth and history. It was a ring of large stones, each moss-covered and weather-worn, jutting up from the earth like the fingers of some buried titan, a hexagonal orifice carved into the top of each one. Seneca stood upon a hexagon platform in the center, with six stone altars all around him, On the altar before him stood a great shadowy demon, around the same height as the Grand Atterman, but far more muscular and proportionally built, his wings wrapped around him like a cloak. Its only truly distinct feature was a pair of burning red eyes, eagerly glaring down at Seneca in anticipation as its mouth twisted into a wicked grin. Hello, Red Ruck. Seneca sighed having feared the dream demon would be his punishment from the start. You responded to your summons rather promptly, I must say. Oh, I was following the proceedings rather keenly, Red Ruck admitted with a playful shrug. It's not every day that someone of your standing falls so hard so fast. What an absolutely hilarious blunder you've committed, Seneca. Not that I care about Emerus one way or the other. Your demotion, though, raises some interesting possibilities, though, doesn't it? Tell me, who do you think will replace you? Not Crowley, surely. A brain for a head would never do, since chapter heads need to be able to pass for mundane. The Ophion occult order has always been a bit ableist in that regard. The darlings, either alone or together, are out too, I suppose. As powerful as they are, they aren't exactly stable. Who does that leave them? Thorne, maybe? But no, he'd never give up micromanaging that laboratory of his. Uh, no matter. It's out of both of our hands anyway, isn't it? Seneca stood there dejectedly, his head hung low. They're watching, I take it, he muttered. You're still exactly where you were, yes, and they can all see me, Red Ruck nodded. Your fear of these woods was fresh in your mind, so it seemed a good place to start. Fear of the wolves, in particular. You've always been afraid of wolves, haven't you, Seneca? Ever since you were a boy in your family's country house, and you could hear them howling at the moon. The clouds overhead began to part, revealing a bright red blood moon. It throbbed like a living heart, with branching veins and arteries snaking off into the darkness, pulsating in time with its beat. Seneca heard the same wolf howl as before, only now that lone howl was answered by the rest of its pack. You never saw a wolf, though, until you were thirteen. It had been a harsh winter. The pack was starving, they had grown desperate enough to raid your stables. You awoke in the middle of the night to a cacophony of terrified neighing and ferocious growling. Young and brash, you grabbed your faithful blunderbuss without a second thought and raced for the stables. When you got there, it was so noisy, yet so dark, but there was just enough light for you to see what you wish you could have unseen. Chestnut, your favorite steed, splayed upon the ground as the pack tore out her entrails, her terror and agony undeniable as they ate her alive. There were so many wolves there more than you dared to count and your blunderbuss was only good for one shot. You thought of perhaps firing it upwards in the hopes it would scare them off, but then you saw the ravenous hunger in their eyes. You were of course far too privileged to have experienced such desperate hunger yourself, but somehow you were still able to recognize it on some instinctual level. You knew that if those wolves didn't eat, they would die, and an empty threat from you would be nowhere near enough to frighten them off. They were so skinny, but at the same time they seemed so big, their fangs all bared and their muzzles covered in blood, tearing at your prized mare with such unrestrained savagery. Then one of them, perhaps the Alpha, noticed you standing there. You saw its starving, shining eyes staring straight at you, a monstrous growl rising in its throat, an unmistakable threat in case you dared to get between the pack. And their kill. You fled back into the house then, leaving Chestnut and the other horses to their fate. You briefly tried to rouse and rally the servants to go out and chew them off, but your father wouldn't have it. He was a slightly better man than you've ever been, and he wouldn't let the servants risk their lives for a few easily replaceable horses. And so, you had no choice but to listen to the ravenous pack tear their way through your stable murdering your horses until they'd finally had their fill and leaving behind only nightmares and one hell of a mess. A pack of wolves began emerging from the trees, all of them black, all of them enormous, all with red rock's fiery red eyes. How many times have you dreamed that you were the one being eaten alive by those wolves, Seneca? Seneca buried his face in his palms and quietly wept, shuddering with dread at the thought of his imminent torture. He didn't bother to run, though. It would only draw the whole ordeal out, and that was what everyone else wanted. When he looked up at Red Ruck, he saw that he was presenting him with an ornate blunderbuss pistol, like the one he had failed to use against those wolves all those centuries ago. I have to make it sporting even if it's only good for one shot, he smirked. Use it wisely. Red Ruck vanished then, and the wolves erupted into a symphony of horrendous howls. A bitterly cold wind blew in, bringing with it a flurry of snow, covering the ground impossibly quick. In what seemed like only seconds, it was already too deep to run in. Storm clouds swept across the moon, utterly blocking it out, and the only light left came from the glowing red eyes of the circling wolves. Seneca debated with himself about whether or not to offer even a token display of resistance. He knew he had no power in the dream demon's realm, and that the blunderbuss's single bullet would be useless even to end his own life. Redruck just wanted him to squirm, and dangling the possibility of escape however fleeting or illusory, was only meant to make him fight until he could fight no more. Seneca's attention shifted away from the phantom wolves around him, now to the real wolves he had encountered so many years ago. His failure to fire his weapon, then, had been an admittance of impotence, an acknowledgement that those starving, mangy mutts trespassing upon his manor had more authority there than he did. They had cowed him into submission, and he had not even dared to try the same tactic on them. But then he had his estate to consider, his family, his servants, his horses, all of whose lives may have hinged on his choices at that moment. Now, though, his choices counted for nothing, so he may as well make the choice that spared him as much of his dignity as possible. Pointing his weapon not at the wolves, but up towards the southern monolith, he fired... He fired, knowing full well the noise would not scare them off, but daring to try nonetheless, refusing to give in to fear as he had done when he was a boy. The first of the wolves came lunging at him, pinning him to the ground and tearing out his throat. His screams quickly turned to incoherent gurgles, his lungs began to burn from the lack of air, but yet he knew Red Ruck would not be so merciful as to let him die. The other wolves crowded around, clawing open his torso and pulling out his intestines and organs, their jaws crushing and shredding them like meat grinders. Seneca felt them being torn out, being chewed up, even somehow being swallowed and bathed in stomach acid. It was excruciating, and quite literally his worst nightmare, and he could not fight back or even scream in agony. The Grand Atterman stared down at Seneca writhing on the floor, his body fully intact and yet his mind subjected to tortures that no one in the waking world would even be capable of experiencing, let alone surviving. He gave a smug nod of satisfaction at the surreal castigation and turned to his counselors to see if they too were satisfied. But instead of gleefully watching Seneca thrash beneath them, They were all looking upon the Grand Adderman in silent horror. Grand Adderman, your crown, the one nearest him spoke in the softest of whispers. The Grand Adderman promptly removed his crown and barely stifled a gasp when he saw that the Philosopher's Stone upon it was cracked, a rounded silver bullet embedded in its body. Practically crushing what was left of the crown in rage, he cast an accusatory gaze at the dream demon, now lazily perched upon the west balcony. Redruck, beyond even the Grand Aderman's power to control or discipline, simply gave a casual shrug. As I said, I had to make it sporting, he explained, flashing a mischievous grin. The Grand Aderman looked back down towards Seneca, who despite being trapped in a waking nightmare where he was being eaten alive by wolves, managed to smile up at him defiantly. The Erebus Project Written by The Vesper's Bell A factoid you may have come across while browsing the internet is that blind people don't see blackness or darkness. We see nothing. If you're sighted, you don't see darkness behind you, you just don't see anything at all. That's what it's like for me. I've been completely blind since birth, and vision's always been a very foreign, abstract concept to me. I've never known light or darkness but that changed when I volunteered to be a test subject for a project named Erebus. I received a phone call last November from someone claiming to work for a private research firm called Noir Laboratories, saying they had gotten my information from the NHS. They were looking for subjects with varying degrees of visual impairment to test something they called an Illuminiferous Chamber, and wanted to know if I could come in for an in-person assessment. They were willing to pay me £50 just to come in, and another £1,000 for the testing if I qualified. I had my brother help me research them to make sure it wasn't a scam, and we came to the conclusion that it was a small but legitimate operation. It was a little vague exactly what they did, but their primary research projects appeared to be moonshots based on fringe science. That was, admittedly, a bit of a red flag, but it didn't make the prospect of £1,000 any less tempting. I figured just going in for an assessment couldn't hurt. My brother took me to the clinic as I'd never been there before, but since I had no idea how long it would take, I didn't see any point in him hanging around. I assured him I'd be fine on my own, and I would call him when I was ready. In retrospect, that was a mistake. They were ready for me as soon as I got in. I consented to them viewing my medical records, orally answered a questionnaire let them prick my finger for a blood test of some kind, and submitted to an eye exam to confirm I was 100% blind. During the questionnaire, I did hear a very odd sort of mechanical whirring noise. When I asked what it was, they told me it was only an old scanner someone was using. At the time, I just assumed they'd meant a document scanner. After all of that, I was given a one-on-one interview with a woman who introduced herself as Miss Noir, I stifled a chuckle at what I assumed to be a very obvious pseudonym, given her company's name and its mysterious nature. But I suppose there are people named Noir, so maybe it was just a happy coincidence. I finished going over all of your information and test results, and I think you'd make an excellent test subject for Project Erebus, she said, as I heard the creak of expensive leather upholstery from her sitting down in her office chair. I couldn't help but take note that the guest chair I was in was of much lower quality, which told me a great deal about how Miss Noir viewed her underlings and test subjects. She smelled strongly of cashmere, so I presumed she was also well-dressed, along with smelling fastidiously and immaculately clean. Her voice was fairly young, mid to late twenties, and she spoke in a properly aristocratic King's English accent. I suspected she was a posh little trust fund baby who had used her familial wealth to finance this peculiar startup of hers. I assume you have some questions before you agree, I heard her say, and realized I had zoned out while she was still speaking. Well, I'm still not really sure what the project even is, I replied, nervously fidgeting with my folded cane. A luminiferous chamber just sounds like a fancy name for a dark room. Hmm. Have you ever heard of anechoic chambers, Marissa? She asked me over the sound of her fingers softly tapping on a touchscreen. They're the most soundproofed spaces in existence, the quietest places in the world. They're so quiet you can hear your own organs move. Most people find the experience quite unnerving and can't stand to be in one for more than an hour. Electromagnetic anechoic chambers exist as well but they don't have the same psychological impacts as the acoustic ones do. Our aluminiferous chamber doesn't just block all light, doesn't just absorb all light, but is literally a space where light cannot exist. Photons are still created, and survive long enough to enable chemical bonds between atoms and molecules, but are obliterated so quickly that if you shined a torchlight into someone's eyes, it would never even reach their retina. Obliterated? By what? I asked curiously. Have you ever heard of luminiferous ether? She asked in reply, taking a sip of what smelled like saffron tea, and never asking me if I would like some. Um, yeah, I think so. It's a discredited theory about light existing solely as a wave in an otherwise undetectable medium, right? I said uncertainly. Discredited isn't the term I'd use. Scientific theories are never fully proven or disproven beyond dispute. They're merely adjusted to accommodate new evidence, she said with authority, her teacup clinking against the saucer as she put it down. Oh, yes, of course. I smiled weakly, wondering what kind of pseudoscientific nutter I'd gotten myself involved with. So, you're saying that your aluminiferous chamber works by modifying the luminiferous aether so that light cannot exist inside of it? That's the gist of it, yes, she answered, her chair creaking again as she leaned back in it. And as a result, it's the darkest place in the universe. Do you know that the human body is luminescent in the infrared spectrum? That means no matter where a person goes, they always have light with them, even if they can't see it. But just as the silence of an anechoic chamber makes previously inaudible sounds quite noticeable, we found that the absence of any ambient light at all allows for the emergence of some rather novel phenomena that have hitherto gone unobserved. What kind of phenomena? I asked, suddenly concerned. For the sake of the experiment, I'm afraid I'll need you to be going in completely blind, she replied. I waited for a beat for her to say, no pun intended, or no offense, but she said nothing. Well, am I going to be in any sort of danger? I asked. Not physically, no, she assured me. Psychologically, though, it's a bit unclear. All of our other subjects, all sighted, found the absolute darkness extremely disquieting and were unable to tolerate it for more than a few moments. You, though. You can't see darkness. You see nothing. We'd like to know what effects, if any, our chamber has on you. And I'm not going to be exposed to any kind of dangerous radiation or chemicals or anything like that. It's just the luminiferous ether, I asked, hoping I wasn't coming across as too incredulous. Yes, and it's completely harmless, she promised. All you have to do is sit in a dark room for as long as you can, and you'll walk away 1,000 pounds richer. I pondered my options for a minute. It would obviously be the quickest, easiest thousand pounds I had ever made. But what if it was dangerous? There was no such thing as luminiferous ether, so Miss Noir clearly had one or two screws loose. Whatever the luminiferous chamber actually did could very well be dangerous. Then again, it might not be doing anything at all. She did say that there had been other test subjects, and unless she was blatantly lying about that, then surely one of them would have notified the authorities had they suffered serious harm, or their next of kin would have if they had died. Right then. So, where do I sign? She slid me a waiver and non-disclosure agreement, in braille and non-braille versions, and after reading them, I signed and initialed wherever she pointed my hand. I've been told I have a doctor's handwriting, but just making a mark is good enough for legal reasons. Once the legalities were out of the way, she led me down the hall and to Project Erebus's Illuminiferous Chamber. I was walked straight into it and told to sit down upon a chair without being provided any description of the device itself. I can echolocate a little bit, though, and I got the impression that the chamber was round, maybe a couple of meters in diameter, with a very hard and smooth shell. Once I was in place, Miss Noir slid the door shut, and it sealed with a distinct hiss. That made me a little nervous, since it led me to believe the chamber was airtight, but otherwise, I didn't notice any change. I had assumed that it would be a sensory deprivation chamber of some sort, but I could still hear muffled movement on the other side. The voices were largely indistinct, but I did hear Miss Noir give the very clear order to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. The chamber started to hum, a very eerie, unnatural humming that wasn't quite like anything I'd ever heard before that sent a chill down my spine. that's when things started getting weird have you ever heard white noise that you didn't notice was there until it stopped i suddenly felt like something was gone something that hadn't always been there but i had never noticed like a fish who never knew what water was until they were taken from it there truly was no light within that chamber and even though i had been completely blind since birth i felt its absence The perfect darkness that I felt enveloping me was creepy, but not immediately alarming. It was an alien sensation, and I didn't know what to make of it. As it grew stronger, I increasingly got the impression that it was something abominable, something eldritch, something that wasn't supposed to exist, that couldn't exist under the laws of nature as I understood them. And then I realized why this new sensation seemed so very foreign to me. It was sight. I wasn't just feeling this otherworldly darkness, I was seeing it. I don't understand how, but the first and only thing I ever saw was the primordial darkness inside the Aluminiferous Chamber. I was horrified and confused, but also curious, so I didn't ask to be let out of the chamber just yet. I stared into the impenetrable darkness as deeply as I could. And the longer I did so, the longer I got the feeling that something was looking back at me. Now that I could see this darkness, it, or something in it, could see me. I took a sudden, deep, reflexive gasp loud enough for my echolocation to let me know that the chamber no longer seemed only two meters wide anymore. I couldn't sense the walls at all. I think that was because my brain was devoting all available processing power to make sense of this vision of darkness. People like me who have been blind from birth or young childhood really do have more acute non-visual senses because our visual cortexes have rewired themselves to more thoroughly process our remaining sensory input. Now, I was experiencing the opposite of that all my other senses going numb as my visual cortex attempted to fulfill its intended purpose. It really was a cruel irony. I could see it for the first time, and there wasn't one photon of light to see with. When I most needed my remaining senses at their keenest, they were dulled as the novel darkness demanded so much analysis from my brain. I tried to fight it. Tried to listen tried to echo locate to figure out what was in the darkness with me. Instead, I felt hot, fetid, rancid breathing on the back of my neck. I screamed and jumped out of the chair, my only thought to bang and scream on the chamber door until they let me out or I knocked it down myself. But it wasn't there. It should have been just one or at most two strides in front of me, but it wasn't. The darkness I had found myself in was somehow far larger than the chamber itself. Terrified beyond reason, I ran as fast as I could, not knowing what lay ahead, but desperate to escape from whatever was behind me. But I couldn't escape. It wasn't chasing me, for I heard no sign of pursuit, but I couldn't gain any distance on it. No matter how fast I ran or in what direction, I could still hear its ragged breathing behind me, still smell the odor of death and decay it carried with it. It was in the darkness, a part of the darkness, and I could not escape that darkness. It became harder and harder to breathe as the stench of the thing intensified, and eventually I dropped to my knees gagging and retching at the mercy of whatever was there in the dark with me. I unfolded my cane and started swinging it all around me in a last-ditch effort to defend myself, but it never made contact with anything solid. "'Who's there?' I demanded, tears of desperation pouring down my cheeks. Maybe in response to me, or maybe not, it came closer." close enough that my echolocation was enough to get a vague sense of its dimensions. It was an uneven, oblong shape about the size of a person. Suspended vertically, about a foot off the ground, it was pockmarked with various orifices that wheezed out foul-smelling vapors, the entirety of its form expanding and contracting greatly with each labored breath. It shuddered in what seemed like pain with each exhalation, but was otherwise quite lethargic and sluggish. It was right in front of me now, mere inches from my face. I was shaking, trembling, sobbing uncontrollably. What was this thing, this bizarre, otherworldly, alien thing, and what did it want? Did it mean me harm, or was it simply investigating an intruder into its territory? I just wanted it away from me, and since I couldn't flee... I decided that my only option was to push it away. Reticently, I slowly raised my hand and placed it upon the entity's body. Its flesh was soft and moist like kneaded dough, and warm like it had been left to rot out in the hot summer sun. It didn't react to my touch, so I pushed my luck harder and gave it a subtle nudge away from me. It didn't move one inch. Instead, I felt an eyeless human face emerge from the mass, its mouth hanging agape and askew. I screamed and fell backwards, trying my best to scuttle away, but still unable to put any distance between myself and that thing. And then the face started singing. It wasn't screaming, exactly, but a ghastly, unnatural-sounding wail that carried with it the slightest hints of harmony to indicate that it may have been music and then another voice joined the chorus and then another and then another it sounded like the creature was forming new faces all over its body every one of them singing their soul-shattering hymn more voices came from behind me another one of the creatures emerging from the darkness already with a multitude of faces to join in the choir At least three more drifted in from the sides, and I was completely surrounded now. Their voices just grew louder and louder, and I clasped my hands to my head in a desperate attempt to block it out. They're going to deafen me, I thought. No, please God, no. I can't be blind and deaf. Please, no. Helplessly. I laid in the darkness, enduring the acoustic assault of the strange monstrosities that had accosted me, with no means of hope of escape. Mercifully, it seems that the technicians attending to the experiment were neither ignorant of nor apathetic to my plight. In an instant, the singing stopped, and the darkness was replaced by the complete absence of sight which I had known all my life. My ears were still ringing from the ghoulish music so I didn't hear the door open, and I barely heard the lab assistants as they tried to console me and help me to my feet. What I did hear was that same mechanical whirring I heard earlier, this time accompanied by a bunch of excited jargon that meant nothing to me. They were scanning me, and had scanned me earlier, and were perfectly fine with doing it without asking or telling me. It made me wonder if I hadn't just escaped from one den of monsters to another. A little over half an hour and a quick debriefing later, I was back in Miss Noir's office. My hearing was back to normal, but I was badly shaken. I didn't fully understand what I had just experienced. I still don't. I heard Miss Noir walk in and smelled that she had a mug of steaming hot chocolate with her. This time, though, she put it down directly in front of me. That's from my personal stash. You won't find that in any shop you'll ever set foot in. On the house, she said, a soft hit of sympathy in her voice as she sat in her chair. What the fuck just happened? I demanded. Marissa, I think I owe you an apology, she sighed. I thought that since you were blind, the effect of the chamber would be negligible, even non-existent. It seems it actually affected you more severely than our sighted subjects likely because you didn't have the luxury of confusing the darkness you were seeing with something mundane. But how could I see anything? And what the fuck was in there with me? I demanded. The darkness, the pure, true darkness created within the aluminiferous chamber, is primordial, so fundamental that any conscious entity can perceive it with or without visual sensory organs, she claimed dubiously. As for what was in there with you, that's a tad more speculative at this point. We think that they're made of some form of dark matter, a shadow ecosystem and maybe even civilization composed of a kind of matter that doesn't interact with our own. We're completely invisible to each other, at least under normal circumstances. But when we create a space of true, primordial darkness without any photons that appears to allow for at least a degree of interaction. Our sighted subjects, they experience things as well, but not like you. I think it may be because you experienced the darkness in a way that they just didn't. And maybe through some kind of observer effect, you and those creatures became more real to each other than was otherwise possible. I let her words sink in for a minute. Those creatures, those... Monsters I had encountered in the chamber were everywhere. They were everywhere, we just couldn't interact with them. I had experienced something that was otherwise impossible in that chamber, encountered the denizens of a shadow earth that I never should have met. Bloody dark matter aliens, and you didn't think that was something I needed to know before I agreed to this? I asked bitterly. You said all I had to do was sit in a dark room, I could have lost my hearing. I could have been killed. Yes, it seems our initial risk assessment was a bit off, and we are willing to compensate you for that financially, she told me as I heard her flip open a checkbook. So long as you understand that none of this invalidates your liability waiver or non-disclosure agreement. I scoffed in disgust and reached for the cocoa she had given me. It was rich and delicious, and did calm me down a little. Even if I could somehow find a lawyer who would take such an outlandish case, or a court that would hear it, what chance would I have in a lawsuit against a firm with the resources to literally bend the laws of physics to their whim? Yeah, I understand. I nodded with a dejected sigh. Ever since then and I've been a blind woman who's afraid of the dark. I sleep with my bedroom light on now and always carry an LED light in my purse because if I'm in the dark too long, I start to feel that same warm, fetid breathing on the back of my neck. I think Miss Noir was right about there being some kind of observer effect involved in this. The shadow creatures and I know about each other now, and we can't unknow each other. This anchors us in each other's realities just enough that we no longer need perfect darkness to interact. Just regular darkness is enough for us to start to faintly perceive one another. Maybe they don't actually mean me any harm. Maybe they're as afraid of me as I am of them. But I don't think so. Maybe it is just because they're so strange. But I can't think of them of anything other than... Than monsters. I suppose that one day, when the lights finally do go out, I'll find out for sure. Okay. I hope you all enjoy tonight's episode please let me know what you thought of it in the comments below. And uh, if you enjoyed it, please give this video a like and subscribe for more if you haven't already. And if you'd like to help support this channel, I would really appreciate it if you would check out the Patreon link in the description. For as little as a dollar a month, you get access to ad-free narrations. And for uh, slightly higher tiers, you can get on-screen shoutouts and more. If you need a mask or are in the market for a t-shirt or sweater or anything like that, I would also really appreciate it if you would check out my merch store in the description below. I've had tons of great feedback on it, and uh, if you're into the style, I think you'll love it. Alright, well, with all of that out of the way, thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed tonight's stories by the Vespers Bell once again, and have a good night. Cheers. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed tonight's story. If you did, make sure to check out more of the author's work in the episode description and go to youtube.com slash clancypasta to hear new episodes first. And if you'd like your story featured in an episode, feel free to email it to clancypastastories@gmail.com. at gmail.com. You can always get your creepy cool merch at teespring.com slash stores slash clancypastastore. And I hope you all have a great night. Cheers.